No, actually. No, this is not another cross-politic episode. Even though you're hearing the music and everything sounds normal, this... I don't know, it might be an advertisement to go to New St. Andrews College, maybe particularly to be under Jeff Schaefer at the Hale Institute. I don't know. Or it's just going to be an amazing 36 minutes of Jeff Schaefer breaking down, doing analysis of the conversation between Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin on gay parenting. I haven't heard a better breakdown than what you're about to hear. I sent Jeff Schaefer... The whole video on YouTube of Jordan Peterson talking to Dave Rubin about gay parenting. Jeff Schaefer blew my mind in the analysis that he gave and made me think far more clearly than I ever have before on the subject. And I'm going to tell you, the next 36 minutes you're going to listen to probably for two or three more hours because it's so good. You're going to want to digest it over and over and over and over and over again. Jeff Schaefer is the director of the Hale Institute here in Moscow, Idaho, at New St. Andrews College. He doesn't know this yet, or he might. I'm going to be sneaking into his class while he's teaching at the Hale Institute. You know, just do a few audits if I can get in there without causing too much trouble. Because I want to learn to think like this and communicate this way. So without any further ado, buckle up for an amazing 36 minutes with Jeff Schaefer. Knox sent me the link to the Jordan Peterson podcast titled Gay Parenting Promise and Pitfalls, in which Peterson interviewed Dave Rubin about Rubin's decision together with his male partner to plan and procure infants for their possession. Both the interview and its subject matter is shot through with trouble, so here I offer some comments in response. The Gist of the story told and reviewed on Peterson's podcast is that Dave Rubin and his male partner selected a woman from a catalog and bought a substantial number of eggs extracted from her that Rubin and partner then shared between the two of them, had half fertilized with the sperm of Rubin, the other half with the sperm of his partner, and then they hired two surrogates to gestate the two kids, one from each of these men's um, gametic contributions. And at the time of the interview, the surrogates were well into their pregnancies. So such is the setup. Now, to start this, I'll say that I have a genuine appreciation for Jordan Peterson for a number of reasons. But I found uh, what he put forth in his interview with Rubin to be uncharacteristically lacking in the insight and frank observation and critique that he's demonstrably capable of, and which this kind of subject matter plainly calls for. Surely Peterson has a clearer sense than he let on of the doom that's implicated in uh, Rubin's dark project here and in the social acceptance of this kind of exploitation and upheaval attending the manufacture of children. But he didn't bring himself to say as much and certainly not in a way commensurate to the gravity of the subject matter under discussion. I'll return to this later. Um, But as to the content I reviewed, while much or most of my comments here will be directed to this Peterson-Rubin interview, I uh, also watched and will have things to say as to Rubin's monologue on his own show when he first announced to the world his child fetch venture and uh, gave details on it. And one of the virtues, if I might call it that, in Rubin's discussion, both with Peterson and on his own show, is he does us the the favor of setting forth rather plainly and in some detail 
the gross commercial and eugenic nature of his mission to create infants that he and his partner can then raise together. For instance, he describes searching through an online catalog with an array of potential mothers for his envisioned children and doing so in a similar fashion to how he would evaluate hookup options on a Tinder app, admiring physical appearance or educational attainment and seeing the different costs associated with each woman and so forth. And what Rubin elaborated when discussing this on his own show was that after purchasing and obtaining the genetic genetic material from a woman who they had selected, he and his partner pursued the standard regimen for the creation of children in the laboratory. By that, I mean that he and his partner didn't make just one child for each of them with their respective sperm and the purchased eggs. Rather, they commissioned a whole batch of embryonic children who then could be genetically tested to determine which one or more among them was, in the view of the hired experts, eugenically superior, thus most worthy of implanting into the wombs that they had contracted to rent. Uh, Rubin explained in his monologue that in what he described as the first time around, they had something like 18 eggs uh, that they had harvested from the woman they selected for this then split them up so that each of these men had about nine of her eggs to use. And by Rubin's reference to the first time around, I take the implication to be that there was at least a second time around with a similar harvest of eggs obtained and then fertilized. Uh, There were a couple of miscarriages, he reports, um, but now there are two children. Uh, The one, I think, was born a few days ago, the other still a number of weeks away from birth. What Rubin did not explain to his audience is the fate he chose for the remainder of the batch of embryonic children that he had commissioned. What came of the perhaps dozens of others who were deemed less desirable for one reason or another, or of those embryos who got high marks but otherwise were simply redundant surplusage? These children will either be consigned to life in a nitrogen freezer in suspended animation or contributed to science for experimentation or will be flushed down the sink. Again, he did not say which of these fates they chose for the remainder of the children whose introduction to immortal existence he and his partner had despotically initiated. But uh, consumers who commission the creation of such quantities of small people do so fully intending, or at least understanding, that they will be consigning these leftover or unapproved children to one of these tragic destinies. And here I'll add that the brutality and eugenic aspect of all this extend beyond the selection and implantation processes and the subsequent disposals. I uh, saw reported elsewhere that Rubin had written in his book that if he were to discover that a child he commissioned for womb implantation later revealed signs of possessing a severe disability, he would terminate the pregnancy. Now, that approach to special needs children is not unusual in the abortion-soaked environment of modern America, but it is particularly suited to the commercial model of child production in which the consumer aims for and takes measures to ensure a high-quality product. Of course, such a buyer is not then going to settle for a deficient or subpar model that would defeat the whole point of the quality control efforts that have driven every aspect of the endeavor to date, from the selecting of the most appealing mother selling her eggs to the confirmed sturdiness and pliancy of the surrogate mother with whom the gestating and child-relinquishing contract was negotiated to the genetic testing of the array of embryos made. 
And I imagine that Peterson, for his part, is apprised of all of how this goes. He seems to me too well informed not to know how these regimens work. But in his public interview, he didn't raise any concerns on the eugenic sorting and disposing of all of these innocent small persons. Now, as mentioned, uh, Reuben and his partner arranged that two children would be gestated and brought to live birth. Uh, Reuben explained to Peterson that he and his partner had for a while considered adopting a child, but ultimately were convinced that it was important for each of them to have a genetic connection to a child. Reuben couldn't quite put his finger on just why he thought that genetic link was important, but concluded that there must be something vital in it for it to have such a strong pull for them. So he either had an inability or an unwillingness to articulate the basis for that desire. I'd say, though, that it derives uh, from an awareness of the profundity of blood ties. But that awareness is one that he perverts by, first of all, tearing it from the context of its significance, and then secondly, by denying that this blood tie connection so important to him is one that should matter to the child from whom he rips the maternal half of its origin. Reuben gets a kid that's related to him, but the kid he makes is deprived of knowledge of his mother, perhaps, but certainly is deprived of a maternal relationship. The uh, philosopher David Velleman has written an essay sharply critiquing this practice that leaves the child bereft of half of his ancestral lineage. I uh, quote Dr. Velleman, Surely we don't believe that parents are entitled to make themselves slightly better off in some fundamental dimension by impoverishing their children in the same dimension. Why then should they be entitled to enlarge their own circle of consanguinity by creating children whose circle will be broken in half? Velleman elsewhere writes that, and here I quote him, creating a new child designed to suffer that alienation is, for the adult, often preferred to adoption precisely because of the parent's interest in biological ties, an interest that they choose to further slightly in their own case by creating a person for whom the same interest will be profoundly frustrated. Velleman then writes, I regard this choice as morally incoherent. You know, in the interview program in which Rubin was discussing his interest in the genetic connection, Dr. Peterson himself had described his own experience of awe that he felt when looking at his kids and seeing not just himself, but his wife and his father inscribed in his children's features and expressions. Peterson mentioned that his son, even in infancy, was revealing characteristics of his grandfather. And in Peterson recounting this, it is plain that his observing these generational echoes in his children was a profound experience for him. And surely he knows it is exquisitely meaningful. These children revealed in their very faces and bodies and conduct their fit, their uh, belongingness in the family from which they sprang, the family composed of their mother and father that envelops them in continuing relationship. But Peterson doesn't follow through to think aloud on this significance. So here we have a fruitful avenue for discussion, but it ended up disappearing before it got off the ground without any critical application to Rubin's brutal undertaking. Peterson never offered the obvious point that uh, Rubin and his partner's two children will be inevitably and forever displaying, subtly or plainly, the characteristics of their mother and perhaps maternal grandfather 
or other kin with whom they're forbidden a family relationship or perhaps even knowledge. Again, uh, this loss of mother was not a circumstantial tragedy from which these infants are now being rescued, as is the case with the adoption of an orphan, for instance, who by painful circumstance lost mother and father and then is embraced in a restorative way by the adoptive family. Instead, for these children in the Rubin Project, the tragedy of loss is woven into their very production. They were made to be motherless intending that they be divorced from her and from their kin on the maternal side. These children were conceived in a lab to fulfill the self-focused wishes of two adult men who want to possess children their relationship cannot yield. This is why Rubin's defensive statement that he doesn't deny the importance of a mother is so implausible. Rubin wants children without the way children should come to be and without the family that is owed to children. He doesn't want to marry a woman and raise the children that naturally obtain from their nuptial relationship. Rather, for Reuben, women are machines to be commercially exploited for their biological utility. He does not acknowledge that their miraculous life-giving and nourishing powers are aspects of their identity, inseparable from their person and calling, and thus necessarily woven into and tethered to a continuing maternal relationality that is properly realized within the enduring institution of marriage and family. Reuben will have none of this. His conduct demonstrates that. Women are bio-machines who are paid for the products and services they offer to his child production mission. Which is why, as he described, he evaluated a stable of different women for their suitability for his purposes, and then selected from among them a eugenically pleasing egg vendor, and then later a suitable gestator, whom he pays and then removes from the picture as he takes home the child that he carefully designed. By the way, this is not to eliminate responsibility or culpability from the women who offer themselves to participate in this way, though they're often desperate circumstances that drive them to this kind of depletion might place them on a different plane of culpability than the one that he occupies as the general contractor and buyer. Now, an instructive moment in the interview, though again one that Peterson didn't pursue for its significance, was Rubin's description of how he had approached his sister with the suggestion of obtaining her eggs to fertilize with Rubin's partner's sperm so that each of these two men would have a genetic relation, though of a different sort, to the same child. On this approach, Rubin himself would be uncle of the child for whom he would purport to be father. Now, his sister ultimately decided she didn't want to offer her eggs as she came to recognize presumably, though Reuben didn't put it in these terms, that she would be passing off her own child to her brother to raise. The terms that Reuben did use to explain his sister's reticence, though, was that she expressed her concern that when she, for instance, would swing by his house for the kids' birthday parties or the like, she might find herself both jealous of the relationship with the child or that she disapproves of how he is being raised or some related worry. His sister's concerns on this front, of course, emerge from the indelible truth that it is her own child that her brother would have negotiated out of her hands. This is a sick kind of strategizing, and it seems that this reality finally dawned upon her in some perhaps only inarticulate but nonetheless profound sense, so she declined to participate. Now, this reproduction project is 
start to finish a nihilistic endeavor, no matter what aspect of it is under consideration. But there is a particular application that I want to consider here as it appears in uh, in his approach to his sister, as if she were a mine from which to extract resources to make an infant for himself and his partner. Uh, First of all, there is a dialectical dynamic in operation. On the one hand, he approaches his sister to suggest egg extraction precisely because she is his sister and thus related to him genetically. On the other hand, by his mechanistic account of family manifest in this despicable approach, he erases the social framework that intelligibly accounts for her status as his sister. This may take me a moment to explain. Uh, Reuben proposed obtaining his sister's ova exactly because she was related to him as sibling. But the effect of this plot, if it had been realized, as it was already present in the theory that motivated his approach to her, is the vaporizing of the conceptual landscape in which sister has meaning to begin with. Uh, Reuben's proposal was to convert her from the mother of her own child to that of the child's aunt. My point here, though, is that the amoral logic of this endeavor would in fact make both categories disappear, as it deems both mother and aunt as ultimately vacant and merely nominal titles, these being interchangeable assignments to be altered upon selection and agreement, rather than as objective relations based in the natural family and its non-negotiable ontology. All to say, there is a severity of human disillusion implicated in Rubin's venture as it crumbles all the categories on which family stands. He evidently wishes to pretend that he can concoct family in a design-your-own-definition fashion, yet still have cause to call this woman his sister, as if that were objectively true. The word sister, though, is the linguistic marker for the real relationship between a person and his or her female sibling. But the category of sibling is a component of a mutually dependent whole of family relations. Sibling implies common progenitors. Siblings are persons having the same mother and father. But once mother and father are vacuumed of their normative meaning, resident in their respective roles in procreation, so also is the family structure more broadly evacuated of objectivity. It's not as if we can treat mother and father as purely nominal concoctions to be reformulated to apply to people who are not and cannot be mother and father, and yet retain all the other relationships nailed down and unchanged, such as son, brother, sister, aunt, cousin, all of which have a network dependence on the persisting truth and acknowledgement of mother and father. The family is not like a Jenga tower, where Quite a few pieces can be pulled from the composition, yet the edifice remains sturdy and can persist in structure and balance. No. Instead, when the category of father or mother is denied or rearranged or redefined, all of the dependencies within the extending relational network of family likewise and necessarily are upended, for their persistence is and only is in mutuality with these other relations. When one goes, they all go be it sibling, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, cousin, all of these disappear. It is thus 
abject arbitrariness that would aim to do away with the profound reality of mother and of father, such as Reuben had in mind when strategizing the use of his sister to make a baby for his own possession, for whom he would call himself not uncle, but father, while assigning his sister the title not of mother, but of aunt, of her own child. Once this kind of nominalism is introduced into family description, the whole thing decomposes into a meaningless pileup. For Reuben, then, to hold on to and use any of the family relationship names thereafter would be to cheat. He draws on and uses names from the relationships and structures of the old model, the real family. That is, he remains dependent on the reality that his expensive project detonates in order for him to get what he wants. The fifth commandment's mandate to honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land the Lord thy God giveth thee, is a fundamental archetypal directive or decree. It requires not only honoring mother and father and all that that means, but honoring and protecting the reality and centrality of those humanly basic and preservative offices and callings of mother and father. The very identification of these offices in the commandment requires the continuing community recognition of their objective existence and authority and their centrality in revealing and cementing the truth of human being and relation, and thus are aspects central to the social order itself. These things may not be touched in ways that dissolve their meaning without ruin following. Now, I may have wandered too far into the weeds here, but I wanted to emphasize that the disgrace on display in Reuben's mission is not just that of an individual bad act. What he is up to is an assault on the structure of human relationality to begin with, independent of what his subjective intentions are for his conduct. This is an antisocial and inhuman endeavor. All right, moving on. Um, Another aspect of Reuben's take on women and motherhood is displayed in his response to Peterson's observation about the benefits to children of breastfeeding. Reuben quickly interjected that he has two freezers full of breast milk. Solution accomplished. A child doesn't require a relationship with a mother. Mother is evidently a word referencing an impersonal female biological characteristic and nothing else. It's a code word for lactator, among other capacities. As such, Reuben can purchase their products, buy their milk, and freeze it. The wonders of temperature-controlled storage devices permit us to eliminate mothers as whole relational persons from necessity, presence, meaning, and centrality to human existence and family. And as a result, he thinks he has rescued his kids from the ordinary dip in IQ that statistically attends children who are not breastfed, because he has already purchased and frozen all the breast milk these infants will need. He announces, moreover, that his male partner has been reading up on skin-to-skin contact with children and plans to make that a practice that he follows. So in sum, it seems that Reuben has concluded that there really isn't anything profound and important about a child actually having a mother, so long as that child has an adult caretaker willing to hug him with his shirt off while providing breast milk thawed from the stash in the industrial freezer in the garage. And 
this view of things, by the way, is central to the Supreme Court and other political branches' belligerent redefinition of marriage into a same-sex construct. The features of this aberration would take a long time even to start to consider, and that's not my point here. Rather, it's just to mention in passing that there is a dreadful revising of human nature in treating persons as sources for extracting the parts and services needed to produce and nourish new people. Once these utilities, so-called, are established in governing or authoritative public outlook as market access items ripped from personal identity and relationship, the courts have the rhetorical grounding to treat adults as interchangeable androgynous preference pursuers and market actors. Children no longer emerge from the nuptial embrace of man and woman. They come from market exchanges, which now serve as a normative case and illustration of reproduction. And so there's no reason for the law any longer to recognize the offices of husband and wife, father and mother. Androgynous functionaries are the progressive grounding and definition of family. Uh, Michael Hanby has helpful contributions in this area of consideration. The technological view of human nature was a substantial conceptual contributor to enabling the conversion of same-sex marriage from an oxymoron into a mandatory legal status. Another point, uh, Rubin seems to suggest he's opposed to the trans program, at least insofar as it reaches children, but his publicly promoted child-making project is itself a standing illustration of the same renunciation of created meaning and personal identity and definition in our sexed bodies. We are, on Rubin's account, apparently but composites of biomechanical aspect commodities for market transaction, our sexual wholeness now to be divvied and separated from personal identity, as well as from covenanted and enduring relationships, without forfeiting anything of consequence. To the contrary, such mechanical divisibility is all in service of individual self-realization. This, like the trans juggernaut, is a fine example of what Mary Harrington calls uh, bio-libertarianism, which she describes as a worldview that believes human freedom necessitates radical unmooring from the givens of our bodies. Reuben and the trans crusade are up to the same thing, just manifested differently. Yet strangely in this interview, Rubin blames the left for being too consistent with the principles of the sexual revolution and for their aggression on the trans project in denying the objectivity of male and female, which gives the sexual revolution a bad name for many people. Yet he absolves himself from responsibility in this field, though he is front and center in advocating in broad daylight and on TV for sexual nihilism and the radical upheaval and overthrow that it inevitably will deliver as he defaces human relationality and our respective callings revealed in male and female embodiment. His bizarre self-congratulation as the gay hero of conservatives because his conduct purports to be in service of a domestic condition akin to the traditional family is simply daft. His pursuit detonates that family norm as radically as anything else currently on offer and that he is the gall to criticize. Now, as to Jordan Peterson, I like him. He's brilliant. He's a compelling figure. And he evinces a kind of sincere caring for people that seems to me rarely on display in public figures. He also has shown a serious interest in the Christian faith, but his tentative or guarded approval of Rubin's project here is presented in this interview is altogether incompatible with and is an affirmative defiance of 
that faith. The sexual revolution is anti-Christianity, as it is anti-human, and it stipulates a replacement metaphysics, as Del Noche, among many others, has so helpfully elaborated. And Peterson seems to miss this. He does, at points, uh, broach a number of insights, such as, as he says, that we can't flatten out real human differences without a tremendous loss, and that we can't just blow out the confines of the ideal of male-female monogamy without destabilizing society at the level of the family, which seems to him, he says, to be a really bad idea. But he doesn't come to grips with the severity of the evil he is confronted with in his conversation with Reuben. Indeed, at times, Peterson takes away with his left hand what he just offered with his right. Several times during the interview, he does this. For instance, though emphasizing the ideal, as he calls it, of the natural family, though not using that name for it, he ends up nonetheless making room for Reuben's innovations, provided that Reuben and his partner work hard on role-playing in ways that mimic the efficiencies of the natural configuration from which they both depart, yet seek to mimic. Peterson counsels Reuben that someone in the home needs to be sure to act feminine toward the kids, and so on. So it seems that the ideal, as Peterson speaks of it, may not be, after all, a binding moral and anthropological anchor point that reveals human nature and created calling. Its virtues are instead, I suppose, resident in its premier functionality. I, I don't know how else to interpret it. Peterson's stated appreciation for the ideal while he also accommodates the defiance of that ideal, so long as it's carefully modulated. Um, uh, another of uh, Peterson's give-but-then-take-away moves was when he first admires the relationship of mother and father to their child, but then immediately pivots to gut that observation by gratuitously offering that children tend to effectively bond with whomever happens to be their caretakers. And the important thing for the child really is persistence in relationship, not the particular persons with whom the relationship is enjoyed. Well, a quick sidebar on that point. The fact of the vulnerable child's bonding need and his reflexive uh, attachment impulse is not in doubt. Um, It is instead precisely this reflex and tendency of young children that indicts the adults um, who exploit this natural disposition of these vulnerable and dependent ones who involuntarily love, who, who can't help but love the adults who tend to them. This affection tendency of infants and young children, this uh, attachment credulity, I'm not sure what to call it, that characterizes them and that makes adult caretaker bonding with them very easy, also uh, can lead to a long-term confounding of the affected child in a context like the one that we've been considering here. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. The child who has uh, reflexively attached to and been uh, benefited by the physical provision and guardianship of his caretakers in a Reuben-styled circumstance is in a perplexed or conflicted condition once he grows up and comes to learn of and understand the mechanistic and exploitative character of his origins. Money passed through all kinds of hands, and a small army of participants were used in order to bring him to gestation and birth. And, this child comes to learn, he was the lucky winner of the high-stakes eugenic testing protocol that pulled him out from among his embryonic siblings as the most worthy of use and possession. 
And surely it won't be lost on him that his obtaining that top spot means his characteristics were the proximate cause of the rejection and obliteration of his brothers and sisters. That is, his siblings were consigned either to an inert limbo condition in a liquid nitrogen storage tank or to their death as discarded surplus or otherwise cast away because scientists adjudged him superior according to some laboratory metric. The surviving child learns that his life came to be by and because of this pileup of desecrations, this field littered with victims. And this poor kid, again, when attaining to years and able to apprehend the nature and circumstances of his conception and birth that were built upon the abuses and manipulations of human beings that we've been discussing, all have been in order to satisfy the selfish wishes of his custodians who wanted the experience of child-rearing, the psychological uplift and helpful maturation dynamic that child-rearing responsibility provides an adult. This is what Rubin forthrightly told Peterson was a prominent motivation in his decision to make these very expensive children. In any event, the child is then faced with an almost impossible condition of striving for internal resolution of his warring, his conflicted sensibilities, in which his reflexive loyalty to his caretakers must vie or compete with the sorrow and loss and upset from their having manufactured him in this way and separated him from his own people, both his embryonic siblings and the walking around people who themselves dutifully joined in this crime against him for money. This is not an origin story that anyone should have to shoulder, nor is its description by Rubin one that Peterson should have left uninterrogated or unindicted and treated with such deferential accommodation. Peterson did not say to Rubin, what you're doing is destructive on multiple levels. His principal message, rather, was a weak sauce admonition for Rubin to be careful. He cautions him that, essentially, you're in uncharted territory here. As if the project that Rubin has engaged is something whose ill effects can be ameliorated by cautious or circumspect plotting, rather than the whole thing being a course of conduct that has its own logic and its own effect operating altogether independent of the naive wishes of its participants. Another critique. Um, Certain of Peterson's comments elsewhere in the interview seem to advocate, or at least concede approval for, the homosexualizing of marriage and family as a concession to the interests and needs of this sexually marginal group. So here again, we see him with this give with the right hand, then take back with the left. He had insisted the ideal family design should not be trod underfoot. But then he goes on to ruminate that perhaps our social legal order should alter fundamental human institutions in order to domesticate and mollify what would otherwise be an angry or despairing group of homosexuals. Not present anywhere in Peterson's out loud consideration on this matter is the universal practice of human civilization in all places across the earth since the beginning of time until about five minutes ago that refused the absurd idea of marriage as something other than the joining of husband and wife. Universal human experience might suggest something about the appropriate range of options to address the concern that he's contemplating, but no such mention entered his discussion. There's a uh, related analytical weakness here. What Peterson fails to countenance is that when we're dealing with the permissible composition of an institution like marriage, like family, the discussion is never and not at all restricted to a question about the marginal group purportedly served by their introduction into the institution, the 1% that would be accommodated. 
The determination of inclusion within an institution is always in terms of the meaning of the institution itself and thus encompasses the whole, the 100% of us. And if marriage is deemed in law a same-sex endeavor, then marriage as it truly is, that is the union of husband and wife, is thereby abolished from recognition. And as a result, in a jurisdiction accomplishing this redefinition, no one any longer enjoys the status of marriage. They instead can only participate in something called gay marriage. Otherwise put, marriage redefinition is not a concession at the margins to ameliorate the outlier condition of a tiny percentage of relationships. It is a reconfiguring of the legal system and the publicly admissible description of human nature. Upon its enactment, the venerable institution of marriage is taken away from everyone. To qualify as married, your relationship must consist now of two adult humans. If your relationship just so happens to contain a man and a woman, that's irrelevant to your qualification to marry or to be deemed married. So again, in law, your marriage is now a gay marriage, even if it is, in fact, a real one. All to say, when same-sex couples are deemed married, the irrelevance of sex to the relationship has become a definition of the institution. And there are severe implications that derive from that. This is quite plain, and it is well beneath Peterson's ample discernment skills for him to pass over this truth. So, uh, Peterson's proposed concern about not overthrowing the social authority of the natural family is ultimately unconvincing, because he ends up saying a number of things that appear to approve exactly that overthrow. Uh, Last concern I'll register about his presentation. Peterson invited onto his own program a discussion about profound evils, immense inhumanity. And Peterson is a public intellectual, perhaps the most popular and recognized of such at the moment, with millions of affectionate students. He carries a fiduciary responsibility to the truth, and he knows it. So his going wobbly in the face of a radical assault on human meaning and the predicates to civilization, on what are central aspects defining our place, our purpose, our telos is no small error. His highly visible platform and communication reach was employed to advance the cause of social rot. He was mum on the manufacturing of human beings, the commodifying of women, the fragmenting of the human person into meaningless parts for sale, rent, purchase, for intentionally making children motherless, for treating infants as construction products, for self-fulfillment and psychological betterment, for divesting human generation from meaningful and permanent family relationships and into impersonal techniques for purchase. Now, as I conclude, I'll mention something I appreciated that showed up in the interview raised by both of these men at different times by way of fleeting comment, and that is that the pushback and critique that they notice as having been offered to same-sex relationships and the child production venture that Ruben is performing and promoting comes from religious people or fundamentalist religious types. These comments were in service of their point that the majority of public opinion is indulgent or tolerant toward Rubin's deviant life course, and this leaves only those pitiable religionists still opposed to it all. Now, I don't think that quite captures the reality on the ground, but it is gratifying to hear them acknowledge who it is that still visibly bears witness to the truth of the created order and its integrated ethical standards. A philosopher acquaintance of mine, uh, once when reciting von Balthasar's observation that it seems to have now fallen, especially to Christians in our day, to serve as the guardians of being. 
then followed on by saying that for similar reason, Christians are to serve as guardians of childhood, which of course includes service as guardians of the child himself. May we be up to it. <laughs>